Welcome to Longwoods Healthcare Services Radio. I am your host, Matthew Hart. Longwoods Radio discusses best practices, policy, innovation, and opinions on healthcare delivery and administration in Canada. Although many of us don't want to talk about our future in aging, long-term care is an important and unavoidable topic. By 2028, the baby boomer population will be turning 80. And a short time later, Ontario's population over the age of 80 will have nearly doubled. Today, I am joined by Donna Duncan, the CEO for the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. For more than 20 years, Donna has been advancing transformational change at the organization and system levels. Donna is passionate about seniors and mental health. Hi, Donna. Many of our listeners um, may be familiar with you, but not all of them. Maybe you could take a minute uh, to let everyone know who is Donna Duncan and how did you get involved in long-term care? Well, well, thanks, Matt. And it really is a pleasure to be able to join you today and join your listeners. So, uh, you know, this was not something I ever planned on doing. Long-term care for me was a lived experience with my grandmother in the 80s in long-term care and my father uh, living in long-term care with uh, end-stage Alzheimer's uh, up until 2004. So I have that that personal experience, but you know, to say that I ever anticipated I'd be running Ontario and Canada's largest uh, long-term care association isn't something that I planned. M- my background was actually in government and higher education and higher education policy, uh, and then uh, moved into the mental health sector. So I've spent more than 20 years working both in adult and children's mental health, and including with the Centre for Addiction Mental Health, um, and then uh, also had the privilege of doing the startup of the Ontario Caregiver Organization for the Ministry of Health uh, a number of years ago. Uh, and this opportunity came up, and uh, I'm always very interested in doing things that matter, and uh, remarkably, that that blend of experience around navigating government, uh, having had that lived experience with long-term care, uh, having uh, served on a hospital board, and uh, also having worked in that mental health space where a lot of stigma created real barriers for progress. And I would say there are a lot of parallels between the world of mental health and the world of seniors care and especially long-term care. A lot of stigma about aging uh, and uh, a lot of stigma about uh, what a long-term care home is and a a real reluctance to actually even talk about it or think about the possibility that that either you or someone in your family would need long-term care support. So here I find myself. Thank you. Um, So we, we, are at a very pivotal time uh, when it comes to seniors care. In Ontario, there are nearly 40,000 people currently waiting for long-term care. Will we have the space for them as the government kind of works towards the modernization and building new homes? As most people know, HHR continues to be an issue. Will we have the staff to support these residents? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question. And I would say that as we, we look at Ontario, we have to look at the context of Canada as well as uh, the rest of the world. This, this is a global phenomenon. By 2040, the number of people over the age of 80 in Ontario will double. Certainly in the, the Western world, uh, none of us has planned for the aging of the baby boomers. And we know that the baby boomers are, are uh, nearing that 
that pivotal 80 mark. And we know that after the, the age of 80, that's when we start to see real prevalence of, of more complex health issues. Certain cancers are more prevalent after the age of 80. Dementia becomes more prevalent. Uh, and so we have to acknowledge that there are those who are going to need more acute care or subacute care. And but yet with, to your point, 40,000 people on the wait list, the government of Ontario has uh, remarkably made historic commitments and investments in our long-term care sector, unlike any other jurisdiction in the world, quite honestly. Um, but yet a commitment to rebuild 30,000 beds and build an additional 30,000 beds, even if the government were to do that, our wait lists will still likely be close to 50,000 people in in five years. So we are not going to build long-term care for everyone, nor should we. But yet we do have a shared obligation to think about how do we then collectively work together to support aging in place, aging at home, recognizing that there will be a real burden on other parts of the health system, whether that's the acute care system, uh, primary care, home and community care, and also informal caregivers. So families, friends, uh, communities, and therein lies our both our challenge and our opportunity. Um, we have a lot of work to do. Uh, it has arrived, the reality of the baby boomers. We know that the, the average age of resident in long-term care is 82 now. The majority of our admissions are from hospital, and those are individuals over the age of 80 as well. And we know that the the individuals in our emergency departments and our hospitals are senior citizens. So how do we do a reset as we think about supporting older populations within the context of our healthcare system? So you just mentioned uh, how do we do a reset? Have the clinical care needs for these people changed over the years at all? Um, absolutely. You know, you know, certainly there are those who are using Kaihai data and talking about how, uh, you know, large number of people who are living in our long-term care homes could be cared for in a different environment. In fact, in Ontario, only 5.1% of all residents could potentially be cared for elsewhere. Uh, it's about 10% nationally. We've become really efficient in Ontario in supporting those transitions from hospitals. And the majority of our admissions are now coming from hospitals. So today we're seeing more than three out of five residents entering long-term care with, with a very high level of care uh, requirements. That's more than 50% than in 2011. 88%, almost 90% of all of our residents require full support compared with about 67% in 2011. And one in three are entirely dependent on, on frontline staff. As we think about medication management, on average, our residents have about 10 different medications and about five and a half, almost six different comorbidities. So they're coming in with multiple uh, chronic diseases. And that's a very different profile than we would have had when I think about my grandmother in long-term care in 1984, or, or even my father in long-term care in 2004, but even very different population than pre-COVID in uh, 2019. Bill 7 has had a big impact on that, uh, where, where um, the priority is on admissions from hospitals. 
And that is putting huge pressure on our teams uh, and our human resources as we think about then what are those competencies we actually need in our long-term care homes to support uh, our residents and make sure that they're achieving quality care as well as quality of life. You you mentioned that the boomers will be turning 80 um, in the very near future. Uh, from some of my reading and preparation for today, I've understood that you've done some very interesting research on boomers and aging. Are they ready? What would you say would be the, the biggest takeaways from your research? I, I would say that we're all very aspirational and our boomers are very aspirational. Uh, they want control over their life. Uh, we interviewed a thousand Ontarians between the ages of 68 and 76 in partnership with Abacus Research. And not surprisingly, the ideal is that they are going to stay at home. They're not going to have any chronic diseases or complex care needs. Uh, they have not had any conversations with their family members ab about care. They haven't planned uh, when prompted about the costs of private care if they need to stay at home. Uh, only about 13% of those say that they would be able to afford private care. Certainly the numbers we hear for 24-7 private home care, it's it's almost $200,000 or more a year in order to support that. And, and it, it is concerning that only 20% feel that they'll be able to turn to a family or friend to help them and support them in staying at home. So the bottom line, most are approaching aging with the goal of staying at home, but they're making no plans to make that happen. And they are going to be looking to government to help them, though the majority would say that government's not ready to help them either. So we're at a critical point right now as we think about what's about to hit us as these boomers hit 80. So we know they're not ready. They've made no plans for care. They have not planned financially to support themselves at home. Uh, and uh, this is going to have huge consequences. Uh, we This is the time where we, we actually have to mobilize. So as we think about the, the wait list of over 40,000 people in Ontario today, even as we think about, well, what will the wait list be next year? Will it be... 45,000? Will it be 50,000? And so again, how do we then collectively come together to respond to support this population? We know that people don't engage and uh, talk about long-term care until they need it. And we know that, and certainly I've been fielding a lot of phone calls, especially over the last few weeks. It's, it's so remarkable where I'm getting phone calls from people who are saying, we were trying to care for my mom or dad at home. We can't do it safely anymore. We need long-term care. Where do we start? And they've made no plans. They've not had those discussions. So I think we have to start having those conversations quite candidly. And um, we need to have children challenging their parents about what they their intents are and, and how they want to be cared for. Uh, but uh, we need uh, baby boomers to start thinking and talking to it can't all be on government. Uh, we really need to think about how how we have those conversations to make sure that we get the pieces in place for the care that people need or will need. So preparation, preparation for what is coming. How do we do better and how do we prepare? Um, I would say not only is it coming, Matt, it's here. 
and we're certainly hearing it from our hospital partners. Uh, the uh, teaching hospitals, the, the Tazan hospitals are, are now building out strategies to support frail seniors in acute care. Uh, they've arrived. Uh, we know that in hospitals, our frontline staff aren't necessarily trained in supporting people with dementia and responsive behaviors. Uh, we We really do need to step back quite honestly, and think differently about how we work together as a system. And, and we've had the privilege of, of working in partnership with the Ontario Hospital Association, uh, home care, home and community care, uh, the mental health care and primary care over the last two years to have discussions about, okay, what is our shared and collective responsibility for uh, these baby boomers? And how do we actually think about triaging that wait list for long-term care? What will home care have to look like? Um, but then what are our responsibilities and really better understanding how we support transitions and keeping people in our in our long-term care homes or in their own homes? So we're having those discussions about naturally occurring retirement communities and how home care might be better deployed to support them or embedding more community services in those uh, naturally occurring communities. We have to think differently about how we support a rural population, for sure. But we also have an opportunity as we rebuild and build new long-term care capacity, how do we think differently about using that space, including embedding diagnostic clinics, uh, putting pharmacies on site, uh, thinking about other community services. Why can't we have a primary care clinic embedded in a long-term care home to bring people in and support them? Uh, we have to think differently about um, how we re resource them. We know government is focused on restraint, but the reality is the population of 80 is going to double by 2040. So bringing healthcare costs down at a time when we know that the demands are only going to increase really requires a partnership with government and well as well to help them really better understand the reality we know the boomers built their communities. They built their families. Um, how are we going to respond? And we're seeing interesting trends coming out of the United States that I think can give us a really good model, something called uh, multi-sector planning or having a master plan for aging is something that uh, California and New York State and, and about uh, 20 other states are, are working on. California is way ahead but starting to think about where does housing fit, including key housing for workers to help us recruit and retain healthcare workers. Uh, transportation becomes key. And it, it really does speak to a different model where suddenly we're taking more of a population-based approach that is really truly anchored in individuals within the context of their local communities. Municipal affairs should play a big role in this. Uh, Certainly education and higher education uh, needs to play a different role. We need to think differently about how we're going to build a workforce. We are all competing uh, for the same in, in the same pool uh, for for newcomers and and internationally educated professionals. The United Kingdom and the European Union have been really aggressive in their recruitment strategies. Uh, so we need to think about how do we grow and build a workforce in a different kind of way, including looking at where do volunteers fit? Where could service organizations such as in rural communities, Alliance Club or Rotary Club or faith-based organizations? There is a need to mobilize today because it has arrived and it can't all be about going to a hospital. 
it can't be all about the burden on a primary care provider, nor can it all be about long-term care. We've got to be really creative to make sure that we've got home care that works. But we also have to look at how do we use the assets that we have as shared assets? So instead of saying these are hospital employees or long-term care employees, how do we think differently about these are the competencies that we have in our local community and we're going to use them differently. And that can include things like pharmacy, uh, allied health professionals, uh, such as um, physiotherapists, dietitians, recreational therapists. Uh, I think we do have an opportunity to reimagine the ecosystem and it's not going to be a cookie cutter approach. Uh, rural and Northern communities are going to have different needs than our urban centers, but really this is a moment for us to unite and even demonstrate a different kind of leadership on how we do this. Quite clearly, this is a case of we are all in this together. There's not one sector that can address all the issues of aging and caregiving and workforce shortages. What do you think that we might be able to learn from the past? And do you have examples of maybe what other countries are doing? You know, we keep looking back to the Second World War. How did how did we build a workforce of nurses and physicians and healthcare workers to support the war effort? Uh, how did we mobilize a lot more learning in real time, more apprenticeship like models uh, that that could be built on? Uh, housing became a key element in in building that workforce in the Second World War. So in our communities across Ontario, we see wartime housing that housed people who worked in munitions factories. Uh, we've seen other uh, approaches to housing in, in places like Banff for, for uh, high tourist uh, places. And so we are seeing certainly key worker housing as being a big uh, element in, as I said, in the United Kingdom and the European Union for recruitment and retention of, of, of their workforce. The master plan for aging that, that is California has developed has, has built in a structure into government where everyone owns the aging issue. It's not just the Ministry of Long-Term Care or the Ministry of Seniors or the Department of Health. It really is a shared responsibility where at the very top of government through the governor's office in New York and, and California, where they really put a stake in the ground to say, we are going to do this differently. We are going to own this and we are all going to come together to find out what those solutions are. And those solutions really are local in so many cases. Uh, again, we believe municipal government has a key role to play in this. And the discussions we're having with our hospital partners is how do we have different discussions around how are we going to solve in this community? Aligns well with the Ontario health team approach, but it's not a top-down governance or funding model. It really is a far more pragmatic approach to responding to a crisis, similar to what we did in COVID, where how are we going to use what we have in the local community differently, more effectively and more efficiently? And let's identify what's missing as well. So can we have partnerships with the Academic Health Sciences Center to, to have access to virtual specialized supports? What are we gonna have in our local community? And so we are seeing these models really emerge through the United States. Uh, in the United Kingdom, 
Uh, we're certainly seeing different approaches around standing directives or delegated authorities uh, between levels of government where you could, or levels of the healthcare system, where we don't necessarily have a doctor in a local community or a nurse practitioner, can we have someone else who can delegate authority and provide supervision to support them? We are, we are also really seeing different uh, approaches around how we use technology as, as a great enabler and even uh, home monitoring, how we're using, uh, allowing and supporting caregivers and using technology to monitor wandering or their activity of their parents. Uh, and uh, so Apple becomes a big player in this space. Um, we know TELUS is very active and we are seeing uh, new emergent technologies, but some are are just consumer products that are going to change how we support one another in aging. So we're at a critical juncture. We know we have to respond. We're seeing the, the ALC rates in our hospital skyrocket. Hallway Healthcare is back in Ontario. And we know that that, that wait list and long-term care is only growing. So how do we spur everyone to action, but perhaps not have to rely entirely on government, but f find those natural leaders in our communities to drive the kind of change that we're going to need? One, one of the biggest words that we hear is silos, and it's across many different sectors and ministries. How do we break the silos and work as one? Uh, are you seeing examples of this uh, in other areas? It, it, you know, it, you know, Matt. It, it's it's the ongoing issue. Government and our system is not structured. We are so anchored in architecture and buildings, uh, and old processes. Uh, we liken um, how policy and and funding decisions are made to the to the game mousetrap or the a Rube Goldberg machine, where we've made things super complicated. Or another metaphor we use is a 1970s renovation to a house. Today, we rip the house down and then we build a new one. However, what we do instead through government in our system reform is we keep adding appendages on. And so it's it's almost a Frankenstein model that, that we've actually created. So how do we break down those silos? We saw silos broken down rapidly in the pandemic through emergency orders, through will. We know it's possible. We shared health professionals during the pandemic. We allowed for flexibility. We allowed for mobility. And I would argue that one of the trends we're seeing with agencies is because the workers actually liked that flexibility and mobility. Once the pandemic was over, the emergency orders came off. We lost that flexibility. But I think our workforce is telling us that they do want it back. So how do we work with our decision makers to get back to recognizing that this too is a crisis, this too is a critical moment, this too requires bold action, and this too needs to allow for more local creativity so that we can mobilize and make sure that collectively we're working in the context of our local community. The silos are fostered by buildings and they're fostered by funding models. So how do we, you know, how do we not uh, go back? And how do we make sure we're moving forward? Uh, I think therein, therein lies the opportunity to learn more from COVID than from anything else. And we've certainly heard from our primary care provider uh, partners, from our hospital partners, we all would love that flexibility again. Uh, and so we do have to find a path forward on it. 
during during this conversation, you have stressed um, this is a pivotal time. Do you have any thoughts on what we need our leaders to do as we work to transform senior care and shape the future as we age? How do we develop and support them? We're seeing extraordinary leadership, and I can speak to some examples between long-term care homes and hospitals. In Ottawa, we have hospital beds embedded in a long-term care home to support transitions from ALC into long-term care. We've seen really innovative uh, solutions to supporting uh, transitions from hospital back into the community through uh, uh, repatriation or using old hospitals uh, to uh, to be shared by other hospitals where we're co-locating, uh, bringing community agencies, Sunnybrook Hospital is a very innovative program with, with Loft and Sprint to support transitions where Sunnybrook brought a, an old uh, retirement home and converted it uh, for those purposes. Uh, we're seeing really strong partnerships, for instance, between one of our members, Sienna, and Trillium Health Partners around supporting transitions between hospital, home and community, and long-term care, having different discussions around how do we bring in new partnerships for transitions for people with mental illness. And one of our members, Schlegel Villages, is, has, uh, is partnered with a number of hospitals around supporting psychogeriatric transitions and smoothing those out. These are all anchored in conversations, informal conversations. And, and I do believe that those relationships are the ones that are fostering trust and really fostering the kind of change that we need so that the leaders in our sector and the health system are bringing the solutions to government. And it's not going to be cookie cutter solutions. Again, how do we think about the context of the communities? We've seen enormous innovation in the North. Uh, we can learn in Southern Ontario from Northern Ontario. But it, it really is having those discussions, fostering trust, recognizing that this is our shared responsibility. It's not a long-term care home's fault or responsibility or a hospital's. It, it is how do we support our population and really have those different discussions, again, not about governance necessarily, not about funding necessarily, but if we stop to step back and look at who are the people we need to care for, what are their needs, and how are we going to meet their needs today for those who are, who are already really needing more clinical support in acute care or more subacute care, uh, but also for tomorrow. And how do we keep people, how do we help people realize their dream of being able to stay at home? Uh, how do we keep them well and prevent them from needing these services? But for those who need it, and we know that one in five individuals over the age of 80 will require far more specialized uh, medical care. So how do we make sure we've got the services in place for them while still making sure we can keep people where they really, really want to be. So I wanted, I wanted to thank you for today. This has been a wonderful conversation. Um, just wondering if you had any last thoughts on what, what the possibilities are. Uh, is there a path to better for the people as they age? I, I believe there is. I'm an optimist at heart. Uh, I never thought that in my lifetime I would see the kind of commitment and passion to mental health uh, and to addressing the stigma of mental illness today uh, over the last 20 years. Uh, I, I do believe that 
we can redefine uh, aging so that it's not stigmatized, that we can have those discussions, uh, and that um, working together and building on the conversations we are having today across our sectors as we think about supporting an older demographic, um, we're, we're having those conversations, and that's always the starting point. Uh, I celebrate incrementalism, seeing great approaches and great models to partnership uh, in communities across the province and across the country, but also around the world as we're learning from one another. Uh, never before have we been able to share and learn from one another. I think our opportunity is always to bring those solutions to government. Uh, but if we're going to look to government to solve the problem, we'll be waiting a long time for that. So our opportunities mobilize on the ground, come together to work with one another, to share, to build, and just get better. Because there is a path to better always. Again, Donna, thank you very much for today. I appreciate your time. Oh, thanks, Matt. It's a real privilege again. And thank you for this. You can learn more about Donna Duncan and the Ontario Long-Term Care Association at www.oltca.com.